Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read the first 16 verses while you stand, and then I'll let you sit down. i got a few more to read after that. I am so glad that you always keep me in your thoughts and that you are following the teachings I passed on to you. But there's one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. <laughs> this is crazy stuff. Why, did this, why is this in the Bible? <clears throat> yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. But since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, she should wear a covering. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping. For man is made in God's image and reflects God's glory. And woman reflects man's glory. For the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. And man was not made for woman. Woman was made for man. <laughs> Is this crazy stuff in the, the 21st century? I mean, I kind of like that verse, but. For this reason, and because the angels are watching, a woman should wear a covering on her head to show she's under authority. But among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. Okay, here we go. Mutual. Togetherness. Husband and wife. Mother, uh, man and men and women. For although the first woman <clears throat> came from man, every other man was born from a woman. Oh, okay. Now he's bringing the balance. And everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't long hair a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this, and neither do God's other churches. Uh, you may be seated. Jimmy. is keep your head keep your head i i in my mind i i have a a picture a mental picture of a man who is headless but he has a turtleneck so it's not gross or anything you know you, you just can't see his head he's wearing a turtleneck but he's carrying his head in his arm keep your head okay no matter what you do how many of you like me have lost your head Every once in a while. Keep your head. Okay? Now, I'm wondering uh, if I could give you an assignment today. When you leave here and you're driving, would you look around you to see how many men and women that are driving together, try to see if the man's driving or the woman's driving. 
Now, I just did this experiment this week, and nine times out of ten, the man was driving. So, I want you to keep your head, point number one today, when things don't make sense. Okay? Like these scriptures. But I want to try to bring a little bit of balance to this today, and, and so hopefully we can all get something out of this. The Corinthians have picked another argument with Paul. <clears throat> Remember, we just spent three chapters on their last argument. Why can't we go to the idolater temple? Why can't we eat meat offered to idols? Now, this argument is about maintaining the appropriate distinction between men and women in prayer during the church service. Paul's rules about hair and head coverings, which is a, addresses men first, here's what that's dealing with. Men and women not using the church to display their availability for sexually immoral relationships. That's still a thing, y'all. Some church single groups are like meat markets. I'm just saying. That's what Paul was up against in the city of Corinth. Now, <clears throat> new commentator this week named Thistleton, he wrote his commentary in the year 2000 on the book of 1 Corinthians, and he says this, public worship was neither the occasion for women to become objects of attraction to be sized up by men nor an occasion for women to offer cryptic suggestions to men. So, <laughs> that clears up a lot of speculation about these first 16 verses to ward off all the sexual immorality that was going on in the city of Corinth. And so, to ward that sexual immorality off, Women should dress modestly, and the men should do so as well. And even though we still today feel the influence in our churches of the misunderstandings that these verses bring, which may have been God's design in putting these scriptures in the, in the Bible, because even today we, we walk in here with that feeling of respect, you know, like, okay, men shouldn't cover their heads, and, and women, maybe it is a good idea for a beautiful scarf or a hat or wearing their hair long, uh, you know, doesn't matter. If you want to do that, that's okay, but I just need to tell you that's no longer commanded in the Bible, okay? Now, first of all, I, I got issues with this portion of Scripture, but is God just cruel? Why? would he have a bald man talking about hair? That just doesn't make sense. But make a note of this. This passage isn't really about hair. Paul's making a statement that it's great if you find your mate at church, but that can't be the number one reason for attending God's house. Now, I had the great privilege of finding my mate in church. It was in the Sunday school class, it was, uh, it was called uh, College and Career. We had just graduated high school. I walked into this room, I, I sat down, and it was, everybody was sitting in a big circle, and I looked around the room, and I thought, oh, 
there she is. There she is. So she hates this story because it makes me sound shallow. But I have been praying for a couple of years for my wife. And I had even told my best friend, I'm going to meet my wife real soon. And I'm going to know it when I meet her. And so God gave me that, that premonition, that wonderful privilege. And so praise God. It's kind of worked out. We've been married almost 47 years. Hallelujah. So thank the Lord. But... We make a huge mistake if these scriptures are used across culture throughout thousands of years when basically Paul was saying to us, don't use God's house as a place to demonstrate a willingness to engage in sexually immoral relationships. So men, just to help you break out of the first century cultural mode, Um, these are the only two hats that you're available to wear. This one's supposed to be a Dallas Cowboy hat, but we couldn't find one. And this is the Dodgers. So if you'd like to wear a hat in our church, I bought a whole bunch of these, and I'll pass them out later to the men. Just kidding. But anyway, um, Ladies, the men in this church got together and voted on how we think all of you should dress. And the women's ministry was so kind to provide this picture in the outfits we chose. And the caption on this picture is, oh, wait, where's Alema? Our women's leader. Oh, wait, where's, where's Alema? Oh, there she is. There, no? Wait. <laughs> now, remember, guys, this was... First century Eastern culture. All ladies were required to wear burkas or yashmaks or hijabs or niqab, not nikabs or whatever they're called. Respectable Eastern women would never have dreamed of appearing in public without being dressed like this back then. And even today in some countries, our female missionaries and their daughters find it best to wear the veil. The veil was the power and honor and dignity of the woman. She could go anywhere with profound respect and the feeling of being secure, but still. It points out that women were considered inferior to the man. Rabbis back then said that she came from man's rib, which was covered up, so modesty must be her primary quality. Now, since these verses were about local customs, compare how much more passionately Paul now speaks about communion in the rest of this chapter, okay? Now, let me read it for you. Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear there are divisions among you when you meet at as a church, and to some extent I believe it, but of course there must be divisions among you so that you can have God's approval, so that um, your God's approval of you will be recognized. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. Some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? 
Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking, or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. This is why... Many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet, we are judged by the Lord. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, as we are gathered today, and we're just about to partake together, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment on yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about the other matters you wrote about when I arrive. So he's, he's tired of answering all of their questions, but that one was so important that he deals with it very specifically today. So here's some things that, that I want you to grasp a hold of about communion, okay? This was clearly, um, this, this first, these first 16 verses, clearly a Corinthian issue from 2,000 years ago that had to do with immorality and some local custom. We don't know who was arguing with Paul to change the custom. I think it was probably some of the women who are now free and knew that they were in Christ and that there's no more distinction between Jew or Greek or men or women. It's what the Bible says. That's what Paul wrote in Galatians. But this passage has been used by men throughout the centuries to dominate women. And that's not what this passage is about. Stop it, guys. That's not the biblical principle. The biblical principle is that we are all one in Christ. Amen? Now, of equal importance is the Bible's teaching that men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. But this passage has been inappropriately used even today to try and justify a, a husband dominating his wife because he's the head of the wife. But do you see God the Father dominating Jesus because he's the head of Jesus? See, this passage is not about hierarchical domination. It's about mutual support and caring that needs to happen between a husband and a wife. Okay? So, I think I've given adequate time to these first 16 verses, but I want to point out to you 
A couple of things before we go. Verse 10, look at it. Women, because of the angels, should dress very modestly. Okay, Barclay is a commentator I like. He said that the angels back in Genesis 6 looked upon women and desired them. And that's where the Nephilim came from. That's where the giants came from. So women should cover up, dress more modestly. Okay, now look at verse 14 about men with long hair. Here's my answer of what I think. That's right. If you can grow it, grow it. All right, let's move on. Point number two. Keep your head when you're under authority. Paul was much more concerned about the abuses that were happening during communion. After he was saved on the Damascus Road, Paul tells us in Galatians that he spent three years in Arabia receiving revelation from Jesus and then another 11 years in Antioch still receiving instruction directly from Jesus. So it's a total of 14 years where Paul was being prepared and being given revelation straight from Jesus. Now, I think, I'm sure, during that time is when he had that experience he talks about in, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians, where he was caught up into the third heaven. Uh, Another one of those revelations directly from Jesus to Paul, I believe, is what we're looking at today. Because verse 23 says it this way. Paul says, I received from the Lord. That which also I have now passed to you. Paul expressly says that what he knows about communion came directly from Jesus himself. Now in all honesty, the two commentators that I've been referring to mostly for these past few weeks, Fee and Garland, uh, these sources disagree with what I just said. They think that he learned it from those he spoke to who were present at the Last Supper. So we know that Paul spoke directly with Peter, with John, with Mark. Undoubtedly, when they were together, he asked them, hey, tell me more about what happened on that night in the upper room. But remember, the first and last words in a Greek sentence received the most emphasis. And the first word in this sentence is I. So listen to what this commentator, Leon Morris, who wrote his commentary in 1979 about 1 Corinthians says, there seems no reason why Paul should say, I received of the Lord, if he means I received from other men a tradition deriving ultimately from the Lord. There are several references to revelations made directly to the Apostle Paul. Being a direct revelation to Paul from Jesus For me, that adds greater significance and importance to Paul's correction of the abuses of the Corinthians during communion. Now, Paul identifies several ways that they abused communion. I love, I I absolutely love the Message Bible. You know what the Message Bible says? It says, if you get to church and you're hungry, go home and make a sandwich. Don't come and then abuse the Lord's Supper. 
The primary abuse are divisions within the church. And Paul uses two different words for these divisions. And either word signals that this is a very serious issue in the church. And they're both in uh, verse 18 and 19. And because of the way Paul put those two words together, it multiplies the issue of division. From these very serious divisions in the church, there arose a series of abuses in the communal feast. Issues that we today wouldn't tolerate at our church picnic or our church potlucks, let alone communion. So the bottom line, let's stop the insanity. There's never a reason for division in a church body. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. We belong to Jesus and we belong to each other. If you've got an issue with somebody else in this church, come on, let's deal with it. Do what the Bible says. Leave your gift at the altar. Go and, and make it as right as you possibly can. If, if it doesn't work out and you need help, uh, grab a few of us. We'll come along with you. We'll try to solve it. And, and eventually, I mean, we, the Bible says if it doesn't get solved, take it before the whole church. Thank God we don't have to do that very much. <laughs> Only a couple of times in the 40 years I've been in, mis in ministry. But, of course... We're going to have misunderstandings. Of course, offenses are going to come. We're human beings. But let's be mature enough to care front each other at the times we disagree with one another. And maybe we'll just have to agree to disagree. Now, I have to open my mouth so much around here, sometimes I offend myself. But we are the people of compassion. We are the people of forgiveness. We forgive as we have been forgiven. Don't ever forget that. How am I supposed to forgive? The way you've been forgiven. In the early church, there appear to be two different ways to celebrate the Lord's Supper. One way, like the way we're about to do it, is that we just present the bread and the cup here as part of our service. Now the other way was to have an entire meal where the bread and cup were just a part of the meal. That's how the Corinthians apparently were celebrating. And there were also house churches. Archaeological evidence suggests that a wealthy Roman home could accommodate nine people in the dining room reclining and about 40 more people out in the atrium standing or sitting. It would appear that the nine or so people in the dining room were the socially high-class, powerful individuals eating wonderful meals, drinking lots of wine, while the lower-class individuals were in the atrium barely getting scraps from what the powerful and important people didn't eat. That, again, is from Thistleton. The commentator. Paul is so disgusted. He asks these folks in verse 22, don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? <clears throat> the combination of the direct revelation of the communion service and its meaning from Jesus to Paul with the abuses in which the Corinthians are involved has led 
to some very serious consequences in this local church. Do you see how easily they forgot that our heavenly Father is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of the church? These abuses result in the Corinthians partaking of communion unworthily. Partaking of the bread and the cup unworthily has led many in Corinth to be liable. They're legally answerable now to the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, unlike other, other meals, abusing communion will lead to judgment from God because those who partake unworthily are not discerning the body and the blood of Jesus. How vital this is to the life flow of our church. This judgment has led to some people getting sick, some were ill, some had fallen asleep, meaning that they died because they did not discern the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's what we believe in our church. We're going to, just a moment, take the wafer and the grape juice, okay? Uh, we believe when we partake of it that it's still a wafer and grape juice, but it represents everything we believe in. Now, there are other church denominations that believe when you partake of it, it actually becomes the body of Christ in your body now and the blood of Christ in your body, okay? So we don't take it any less seriously around here the way we believe it, Come on, we believe Jesus died for our sins. We believe he shed his blood for the new covenant to be enacted. We believe the new covenant brings real forgiveness, full salvation, and a once and for all cleansing from our sins. We believe in the importance of every Christian partaking in communion regularly to proclaim the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of his return one day for his bride, the church. But we do not believe that partaking of these elements today will save you. You are saved the very moment you put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. The very minute you repent and say, Lord, forgive me all my sins. I believe that Jesus died, was buried rose again. He's alive forevermore at the right hand of the Father right now, praying and making intercession for me. At that moment, the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ is given to anyone and everyone who believes. Then, we believe that as an act of faith and obedience, a Christian should be baptized and then partake of Holy Communion to demonstrate their faith in Jesus Christ. So it's putting your faith in Christ that saves you, not taking communion. Now we serve grape juice here in our church because we're, we're sensitive to those who may have struggled with alcoholism or addiction. We don't want anybody falling back into alcoholism when they participate in Holy Communion. Some churches actually serve wine. That's great, uh, but I just, we're more cautious here, and the grape juice is real good. 
The solution to not partaking of communion unworthily and becoming liable of not discerning the body and blood of Jesus is for the Christian to test himself or herself, okay? So that's what we're about to do right before we partake of communion. Last week, we ran into the word temptation, which meant a very severe test, which most people aren't able to pass. But that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's not the word used today. The word used today is a synonym, also meaning tests, but it refers to a test that you will pass. You will be approved. It's like meat that goes in front of the FDA here in our nation. The expectation of the meat sent to be tested is that it will be approved for us to eat. And that's the way this test is. You come before the Lord and you test yourself. And you make sure that everything's right between you and him before you partake of Holy Communion. And you will be approved. And then you go on and partake of communion. If you are a Christian, partake of communion. Now, I've only rarely seen this throughout the years, but I have watched some of you not participate because you don't think you were ready or you don't think you were worthy. Look, you'll never be worthy. We are all sinners, and we, we, we have dirty feet, you know, we live in this world, and so before you partake, check your heart. You got any bitterness in there, any root of resentment or something you need to deal with, then make up your mind, you're going to deal with that. God wants us continually to live a life cleansed by the power of God. And so don't partake unworthily. Don't keep that bitterness against somebody. Don't keep that, don't harbor junk in your heart. Get it out. Get things straight. Keep your head knowing that we are all under authority. Listen, if you went and became the king of your own island and you were the only one on the island with nobody to answer to, you still are a person under authority. So keep your head. Keep your head when Things don't make sense. Keep your head, knowing that we're all under authority. And keep your head, thirdly and finally, when things go sideways in your life. And they will go sideways. Jesus refers to the evening that he instituted the Lord's Supper with the words, On the night that I was betrayed. See, that's, that's what I think Paul heard. Paul is getting this straight-on revelation from Jesus, and I think he heard Jesus say, Paul, on the night I was betrayed. Now, why do you think he said those words? To me, hearing those words in the first person from Jesus adds a powerful and impressive note of authenticity. If Paul received this tradition from the other apostles, don't you think they would have told him, well, you know, it was that night that we were all in the upper room. Or, you know, it was that night that Jesus instituted the Last Supper. But I don't think they would have said on the night that Jesus was betrayed. For Jesus, 
I think he wants us to stop right here and realize the significance of betrayal. He doesn't mention Judas by name, but he refers back to the most painful evening of his entire lifetime. And one of the most terrible experiences that all of us at one time or another, will experience in our lives. If it haven't, hasn't happened yet, you will be betrayed by someone that you love. Jesus knew Jesus was in the act of betraying him during the Last Supper, and how did Jesus react to him? He loved him. He never stopped loving him. He never stopped all the way to the kiss, probably the most famous kiss Ever in history. And I'm here to tell you this morning, he will never stop loving you. He'll never stop loving you. And that's probably the ultimate example. Here comes Judas into the garden. He kisses Jesus. It's a betrayal kiss. And Jesus loves him. And we are to love like that. We're to love God, love ourselves, and love each other. Now, do you have anyone in your life? Uh, it's as if they have so much bitterness towards you that they can't wait until you mess up. You know, I, I personally have two different people in my life who recently, totally two different situations, heard something about me that caused them to pick up their friend's offense without ever giving me an opportunity to share my side of the story. Doesn't that just tick you off? Would you please just give me the courtesy of what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17? The first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. Here's my paraphrase. Don't make up your mind until you've heard both sides of a story. Your friend was offended by me, and you can't give me the courtesy to hear my side of what transpired? Why were you so eager to pick up their offense? Now, regardless, my point is that these two people must be prayed for diligently by me, or else I'm... I'm the same. I, if I'm going to carry bitterness or talk about them, I can't do that. I pray for them diligently. I ask the Lord to, to solve this, this, this terror in the relationship. But, you know, sure, if what happened, what I did was offensive, I need to go and make it right. But please, don't pick up someone else's offense without giving me a chance to tell you my side. Remember in Psalm 55, 12 through 14, David describes that he was betrayed by a close friend, someone that he shared deep fellowship with. He's expressing pain over that. We don't know who that was. It was somebody he, he went to the, the temple with. But we do know he was betrayed deeply by his son Absalom and his closest counselor, Ahithophel. Now, I don't have time to go into that story, but if you want to do some research, go to 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 23, and what you'll discover is that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather, okay? 
So, yeah, he's going to pick up the offense of what happened to his granddaughter. And he turned against David, and he wanted David dead. And uh, David, David knew the pain of betrayal. And, and also, Jesus, he knew. I think in these scriptures right now, he's looking ahead to all of us. There are Christians today who are being betrayed uh, Jamie talked about this young man who's in prison today because he put his faith in Christ. He's in solitary confinement, and they are going to murder him unless God intervenes. So God knew. The Lord knew. All this kind of painful stuff was going to come our way. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss of respect that signaled the one who was supposed to be arrested and tried. And then Judas felt guilty about this. And he attempted to return the money to the Sanhedrin, but he didn't repent. And he didn't find forgiveness. He's identified as the son of perdition. And he's a type of the Antichrist. Judas committed suicide out of guilt. But Judas wasn't the only one who betrayed Jesus that night. Remember who else? Oh yeah, Peter for sure. But all of the disciples scattered. Essentially, they all betrayed him. Peter betrayed Jesus that evening by denying he even knew him three different times. And the difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter, be, he repented of betraying Jesus and denying him. And Jesus forgave him. And then look what happened by the Sea of Galilee. Jesus restores him. He asks Peter three different times, Peter, do you love me? And you know how painful that had to be for Peter to hear it three times? But you know what Jesus was doing? He was replacing those three affirmations with the three denials so that Peter never again had to feel guilty. Jesus then commissioned Peter to love and feed his sheep, the church of the living God. I want you to... Take your communion elements right now and raise your hand if you don't have one. Our ushers are looking for you, and we'll make sure that everybody gets the elements. But friends, the bread and the cup symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus. And it points to the infinite ability of God to forgive all sin through Jesus Christ based upon our repentance, based upon our putting our faith in Christ and then praying and asking him to become our personal Savior. Isn't that amazing? The creator of the entire universe wants a personal relationship with you. Now, some people come to a place like this and they think that they've committed an unforgivable sin because what they've done in the past was so heinous. Satan will constantly accuse you and lie to you because both the word devil and the word Satan mean accuser. It's not just his job, it's who he is. So he's going to accuse you constantly, okay? But listen to me very carefully. If you repent of your sins 
If you repent of having done that one sin, that sin that so easily besets you, that one that you feel is so horrible that Jesus could never forgive you, I'm here to tell you today that Jesus Christ will forgive you. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, even that one sin. Friends, we're going to enter sacred ground right now. The night Jesus was betrayed, one man did not repent and died in his sin, and the other, Peter, did repent and was completely forgiven. The bread and the cup guarantee our forgiveness. I read a heart-wrenching story this week about some children who have been rescued from sex slavery and are now in a Latin American orphanage. One was a, a five-year-old girl who was awaiting reconstructive surgery in both her genital and anal areas because of repeated rape and sodomization. She now has HIV. She was sold to 10 men a day. Another seven-year-old girl was violated so forcefully she now has liver and kidney damage and will have to wear a catheter for the rest of her life. One little boy needs reconstructive surgery from being sodomized so many times that his little body can no longer function correctly. Those men who did this will burn in hell unless they turn to Jesus. You think about that. Can Jesus forgive that? Yeah, but they got a lot of restitution to make up for after they come to Jesus. Jesus, we come before you now. We come to the highest place we could ever come. Your table, highest place on earth. Jesus, we examine ourselves right now. We do not want to partake of this bread and this cup unworthily. We're all sinners, Lord, and every one of us here, we've done stupid stuff. And we've done things we're ashamed of and we'd hate for anybody to know. But you know. And we repent of all of our sinful ways, Jesus, please forgive us and cleanse us from all of this unrighteousness. You know, folks, I don't know how Jesus forgives those big, bad, ugly, atrocious sins, but here's one thing I know. The blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for me on Calvary, it will never lose its power. It's powerful enough to forgive every sin. Take the bread in your hand now. Lord, as a blood-bought, Holy Ghost-filled, Believer in Jesus, holding this bread in our hands, Lord, 
We just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for forgiving us all our sins. Thank you for cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that when we stand before the living God and the books are opened on our lives, all that stuff's wiped away by your precious blood. Your blood covers all our junk. And we'll look at that page that we were so afraid to look at and it'll be white as snow. Everything in our past forgiven. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. After Jesus gave thanks, he broke this bread and he said, take it and eat it. It's my body broken for you. When you do this, remember me. Let's partake of the bread. Then he took the cup and he said, everything's new from this point on. The old is past, the new has come. Everything's new. You get a new covenant, you get a new start, you get a fresh start right now. Everything in your past is forgiven. Oh, you know, if you've got some restitution to make well he's going to help you with that but he's forgiven all our sins glory to God hallelujah thank you Jesus Lord you said when we drink this cup we show your death until you come talk about death, we also talk about resurrection. Hallelujah. Jesus is alive. And we're going to live with him forever because of what he did for us.